0: But I don't have too many preliminary remarks uh, this evening. I want to get right into our scripture reading and into the message tonight. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to, if you don't have one, there should be some in the pews. Uh, I want to give an extra request that you grab a Bible tonight and you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. The book of Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to read beginning in verse 10 and read down to verse 15. Revelation, chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read down to verse 15. Here's what it says. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. was cast into the lake of fire. Our particular focus tonight, though there is so much in this text, it's hard to take in. Our focus tonight is going to be in verse, verses 10 and 11. And the title of our message tonight is, Hell, God's Ultimate Judgment. Hell, God's ultimate judgment. I suppose there have been many times that I have hesitated to preach hell very hard. There are times when anybody can overextend themselves. Having good intentions, we can try and love someone so much, prompt a certain action that we can guilt, that we can annoy, that we can exaggerate to make a point. And I suppose that there have been preachers in the past who have tried to stir something in people and get a reaction. And today, people are very quick to make accusations, especially if it offends or hurts or causes discomfort in people. People are very quick to attribute motives behind what somebody is trying to do and why they're saying what they're saying. So let me just be transparent tonight. Let me just get out before you every hidden motive of my heart tonight. I love you very much. And there are times in life when responsible people have to look someone dead in the eye and tell them a truth that is almost impossible to swallow. And the reaction and emotion that can quickly follow in the person receiving the news has the tendency in our culture today to overshadow whether what the person said was true or not. This evening, my intent is to describe to you where you are going. If you don't make peace with God, I feel as though we as a people owe it to you that you know the truth about where you're going. And if we have become so politically correct in our culture and unintentionally allowed it to rub off on us, if we have... Refrained from saying things that are just factually true because we're afraid of what it does to somebody or how it impacts their psyche. You know, I, I, I get amazed today that parents are very liberal often in allowing their children to be exposed to sin and wrong through movies and video games. number of ungodliness and yet very often we extend those boundaries and premature to our children being able to understand and comprehend what they're seeing we allow them to see all sorts of ungodly sin but often when it comes to hearing the unbridled truth we try to protect them because it shows them a reality it doesn't show them a fantasy they'll never experience but reality is powerful it's much more powerful than fantasy. When God places in our heart that what we read tonight, every single person here will be there on that day. Amen. Right. You can listen now. You can be warned. Or... We can shelter them. But I think they ought to know what God's ultimate judgment is going to be. Just as a doctor would take a patient diagnosed with cancer, and if he cared about him and he was a good practicing doctor, he'd say, two years. That's what you got. Two years, that's it. Tonight, I hope that you'll allow me to be that man that just tells you the truth. You see, we find all over the Bible, and experience already teaches us that there are judgments. Brother Stotler has preached, and he's referenced the different judgments of God. And there are different judgments of God. We find all through the Scriptures, both principles of how God judges... The fairness of his judgment, when he is execute judgment, the fact that there are times on earth that we experience God's judgment either knowingly or unknowingly, that generations and nations and churches and individuals, all of us experience various types of judgment from time to time. Right. One of the things that ought to be a, a catalyst to doing right. And a restrainer of doing wrong is knowing that our just God holds all people in correct, fair judgment for their deeds. You can get away with things with the law or with teachers or employers or your spouse. You will never get anything over on God. He doesn't only see things done in private and in the dark He sees the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows what you think about me and what I'm saying right now. He knows what you think about what we do here and the skepticism and cynicism and anger that can often rise up in the heart of a lost person listening to the gospel. He knows what's there. He knows if you are projecting some of that bitterness towards him, holding him accountable for the sins of other people or his perceived, his perceived wrongdoings towards you. God sees it all. Amen. And sometimes he judges us here. Sometimes he withholds his judgment here. And praise God when he does. But let us not mistaken... God's delayed judgment or his droplets of mercy for our righteousness. Sometimes God is just merciful and he sees us in our wrong, but for reasons of his own doing, he restrains his judgment. There's coming a day where there will be no restraint of God's judgment. The Bible throughout describes this place. First thing I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you the people who are there presently and the people who will one day be there. Verse 10 tells us of this day that is coming. You often hear it as referred to in verse 12, the great white throne judgment. And it tells us that God is going to hold accountable this, this angel that He created named Satan. Often we focus on, when we talk about Satan, his craftiness, his tactics of deception, we talk about how he goes about to and fro and waits as a lion seeking whom he may devour. But let's back up for a moment and just identify his character for what it is. He is a wicked being. And of all the atrocities that you have ever read about, that you have ever seen, that you have ever heard about from a firsthand account, all of the pain that you have experienced, all of the sin that has been sown throughout our culture in this present day and division, out of all the most terrible acts that you hear about and read about in history from Mao Zedong and Hitler and Genghis Khan, all of those men were puppets, and they were also just small little tokens of evil in comparison to that evil, uh, that evil being, Satan. Amen. He delights in people's torment. He delights not only in temporal suffering, which I believe, in my own opinion, he's a lot less concerned about, I think we often judge him prematurely thinking that God or that the Satan takes all of this delight when people suffer down here. I don't think he does that much. I think he has a greater aim. I think the suffering down here, if you want to know my real opinion, is useful to him as a means to an end. And if he can use and whisper in the hearts of people that their suffering is because of an angry God and make them bitter towards God and hate and resent God in hopes that they can just hold out a little longer or he can hold out a little longer until they're, they will experience eternal torment, he'll use suffering in that way. But he also do, does not delight in suffering when he sees that suffering create a broken heart and a contrite spirit in people's hearts, then he recognizes, listen, I don't want to use suffering in that way. If I can enrich them, if I can help them, if I can make them feel comfortable, I'll do whatever I can because my aim is eternal doom, not temporary. He's a wicked being. How many billions of people have been sealed for all of eternity, have fallen prey to this wicked being who runs to and fro and sends his disciples out to and fro, trying with all of his might, trying with all of his wisdom to deceive and discourage you and me. Even... Even Stalin and Hitler, you read about them and there were things they didn't want to see. Oh, they were wonderful delegators. They're wonderful at intimidating people. But there were some things, if you read things about, they didn't want to see. There was a degree of humanity, God's image, they were still God, God image bearers. And there was still degree of humanity in them doesn't exist in Satan. He delights in the death of the wicked. He rejoices at the bedside of a lost man. He's glad that you're confused about where you stand with God. He's glad about what happened to you in your childhood that has made you angry and bitter and struggle, get it over the resentment that you feel. He delights in it. The Bible teaches us that there's coming a day where God is going to judge that being. He's going to be the first one, as far as I can tell, that will be judged. And he may be able to elude a lot of people and a lot of things, but on this day of judgment, he will not elude God. He will stand before God. And I believe this account tells us that we'll watch him stand before God. It says God has books or works. Just my opinion. I think he has a book of Satan's works, don't you? The whole idea is that God is going to call into account people. People. I don't think he necessarily has books, but he's saying, I know your works. I know your thoughts. I know what your words were. And I'm going to make you come into judgment for the things you have said and done. Satan is no different. God has a book of every deed. Think how big that book is over 6,000, 7,000 years. Over the greatest evil empire the world has ever seen. He's going to call him into account. And the Bible tells us he's going to throw him in the lake of fire. I don't know the answer to this. Do you think Satan will have regret? I don't know the answer to that. I would imagine, as we get to this next part, that there's a chance he might. Who else are you going to be there with? Satan's going to be there. said in verse 10 that false prophets are going to be there. The way I read that, since it's right next to Satan, it's people that went out at his behest. People that went out with the... Known intention to deceive. You ever seen somebody who you know they were lying and they knew they were lying? And although they couldn't deceive you, there were some unfortunate souls that they could deceive. And they reveled in the glory and the preeminence that they got. Diotrephes, we learn about in the Scriptures, was a man just like that, who I believe knew to some degree, say right. The Bible says Satan and the false prophets in the very next chapter. Listen to who else it says is going to be there. The fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers. Murderers are going to be there. Whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'll be the first to tell you today that works, good works, don't cause you to go to heaven, and bad works don't cause you to go to hell necessarily. This isn't saying because you're one of that, every person who's one of these is going to go there, because we also know about the character of God that when he sees people who meet these descriptions, but repent of their sins, God is eager and quick to forgive them of their sins. However, there is also a correlation to these people. In other words, being a liar doesn't essentially say it's gonna cause you to go to hell, but most liars do. Most murderers do. Most wicked, abominable people do go to hell because in conjunction with their sin, Typically, people who fall under these categories are also unrepentant. And that's why he says, looking over the sea of humanity, there might be a few exceptions as that man was hanging on the cross next to Jesus as a murderer. But listen, he's an exception to most murderers. Most murderers, unfortunately, do not repent of their sins. As a parent in today's world, I believe we have to be more vigilant than what anybody's ever been at watching over our children. I hate that. I love the idea of my kids being able to run throughout the neighborhood and community and not worrying about them. Unfortunately, those days are gone. And I hate that. And at the core of why I don't let my kids run to and fro is because I care about the company they're going to be in and how those people are going to affect them and what those people are going to say around them and what those people are going to do around them. I am scared. I have many fears. You hear people say, I have fears. I just try to take them to the Lord. That's the only difference. I often fear where my children will unintentionally wander in wrong company. This is the company you're going to be in. You ever walked into a room before of a lot of people that aren't as refined as you? Maybe I'll put it that way. Or I'll just put it bluntly, they're scary. You step in the room and they look tough, and you can tell they don't hold the same morals that I do. I'm not sure who they are and what they're about, but I'm, I'm pretty nervous here. I remember getting off a plane in Kenya, Africa, in the middle of the night. I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were talking to me and handing things to me and telling me to go here and telling me to go there, and, and I couldn't understand their language, and I was, I was scared. And all I was searching for was a face of somebody I recognized. That's all I wanted. I had seen Tom Allende one time at the minister school, one day. And I was going back in my mind of what does his face look like? And there were two or three hundred people who saw somebody that could be taken advantage of. And there they were rushing me and bombarding me. And all I was looking for in the middle of the night in a foreign country for the first time at 19 years old by myself, I'm looking for a familiar face frantically, wondering what am I going to do? The guy says, you want to call somebody? And I thought, who do I call? Who do I call in the middle of Africa? Nobody can help me that I know. Lost friend, imagine what's going to be there. The first moment you perceive, I'm here all by myself. You can't call, you can't. And all the people, let's just say they retained their language from this life. We don't know that if they do or not. But imagine all these people in torment screaming, all in different languages, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of languages that has existed through time. And all of these people are crying out in different languages, moaning and crying and screaming for help. And there you are. Hello. With these, as God defines them, awful people. I want to pause for a moment. Saved friend that's where our family and friends are going if God doesn't intervene. The company that you're going to be there with is scary enough to cause a response, isn't it? I haven't even scratched the surface of hell yet. For time's sake, I'm going to sum up the next part. Torments. Over and over, the Bible uses that word to describe hell. Do you know that? It calls it a place of torment. Sister Megan pointed out the other day how the word loving kindness in the original language doesn't have an English equivalent. There's just no way to describe that aspect of God. The same is true with torments. There is not a possible way God can describe what is felt there. Or rather, that man can receive what is, understand what is felt there. We read in the scriptures a famous account that gives us, I believe, the clearest insight into that place in Luke chapter 16. And it tells us of this man in the The contrast, you know, the interesting thing I got to thinking about as I was reflecting on that text today is that in this life, we all focus in people's memories and in who they are about their accomplishments and their wealth and their talents. But notice this one person in the Bible that God, instead of focusing so much on how they live down here, and then footnoting what the afterlife was, God flips it around. And he doesn't spend much time describing what the man had down here and only focuses on the afterlife. Now let me ask you this question. How many of us wanna be like that rich man? Now if I ask the same question in modern language today, I could ask you this. How many of us wanna be like Bill Gates? And there might be a lot of people saying, me, I want to be like him. I want to have the money that he has. I want to have the access to power that what he has. I want to have all of those things. But the Bible tells us about this rich man that you don't envy and that I don't envy and that I don't want to get anywhere close to envisioning you or me as that person here in the Bible as a man who cried out in torments. What does the Bible tell us that he was experiencing? The Bible uses the description of fire. I don't know if it's a literal fire. I have my doubts. It's just my opinion. It may be literal fire. Either way, if it's anything, I believe he used fire because it's the most excruciating thing we can comprehend. Is that you and I can watch a fire and we can kindle that fire and sit around it for hours leisurely, and many of you are doing that. There, your life, your soul, your eternal destiny is just within the warmth by coming into this church. You're just within the warmth of that fire. And day after day that you reject the word of God and that you forsake what he has to say and you refuse to repent, there you get closer and closer to the heat of that fire. And there comes a moment with all of us, regardless of how cold that it is outside, that you recognize when you got a little too close because it slowly begins to burn. Back away real fast. I would... Try any of you, try to put your hand in there for a minute. Just a half second. You know, when I was a little boy, I used to do that. i go real fast through the fire. See how, fast, you know, how quickly I could do it. Just go real fast through it. I'd try to go a little slower the next time. And me and my buddies, we'd do it to try to see who was most manly. You know, we'd run our hands through it. And always, one of us did it a little too long. Imagine if you can't get out. It's such a strange thing because when I imagine fire, it's no different than the burning bush. When I imagine fire, I imagine it consuming and then dying. I can't imagine something that is an inferno that burns and never burns up the substance that it is burning. It just burns and burns and burns and the hotter it grows... And the more agony and the more torment as you contemplate your agony, it just keeps burning. This past year, I was running for a while. I haven't run since high school. I was in cross country when I was younger. And uh, I've realized in the middle age that I hate running. Um, but I feel the need to do it. And so until Callan was born, I was running very faithfully, and then I stopped. And here the last couple weeks, I began to run again. And I have a treadmill, and the treadmill for me is helpful because it's a mental thing for me. I can go out on the road like I I used to do it all the time. I used to go running, and and I could just run and run and run, and I didn't pay attention to anything. Just be lost in my mind. I can't do that anymore. And so I get on the treadmill, and I start running. And do you know what my lifesaver is? Like, you know what keeps me going? That little timer that's sitting right in front of me. Because what I'll do is I'll set in my head a time. I'm going to run for 15 minutes today. And then a couple days later, I say 17 minutes. And then 20 minutes. And then 22 minutes. And I keep setting that timer. And when I get real exhausted and I'm about to get up, I look at that timer and I keep telling myself, just Fight it out for another minute. Fight it out just a little longer. You can do this. Think of the joy you'll feel on the end of this. Think of the relief of the pain that you'll feel. All you've got to hold out is just another minute, 30 more seconds, and then sometimes I'll start counting in my head because I am desperately grasping just for another moment, and then I can make it to the relief. A person can almost endure anything. I was talking with Sister Peggy and Brother Ron the other day when I stepped at his house and he was telling me the hardest part is I got diagnosed with Bell's palsy and I don't know when it's gonna end. It could be done tomorrow. It could be a year from now. It's it's so hard. When is it gonna end? Part of the tortures of hell. There's nothing to look forward to. There's not a hope. Oh, hope can do so much for a person. Hope is an amazing thing in this life and the Bible tells us we ought to have hope. That we ought to look as Jesus did to the joy that is set before us and even the Christian life. One of the blessings we have in comparison to lost people is that we have an ultimate hope. I know that as much as I suffer down here that even if my suffering makes Job's suffering pale in comparison to what I experience, I can look to the heavens and through faith know one day it's all going to be over and I will find peace and joy and trust me tonight to know that every Christian in this room that has any experience at all has gone through any number of heartaches at all that all of us have persevered through hardship because of moments of hope that we looked forward to and in this place hope is gone it's dead forever oh for me that would be the most torturous Oh, that would be the most torturous for me. See, I'm a a long game person. It's how my mind works. I hardly ever think about today. That's much to my detriment. I wish I did think about the moment now a lot more than what I do, but I don't. I'm always thinking, you know, just that future day when this is going to happen. I have all these goals, and they're all 5 and 10 and 20 and 30 years out, and then you reach them, and there's something immensely gratifying when you've worked for something for so long, and then you reach it. And I can't imagine being in hell. And I'm alone. I'm alone. And I'm tortured. And I'm agonizing. And I can't get out, ever. And you would think, you know, whenever I, I'm just, I'll be honest with you this, this evening, I, at times when I get discouraged and I don't want to think about the pain that I'm in, I just get to go to sleep. You ever had it to where sleeping was the best part of your day? Where you're going through a stretch of life and it's just miserable? But you at least know, at the end of the day, I'll forget it. Until God sometimes invades your dreams. He does that too sometimes, right? Make it where you can't sleep. Make it where you, you dream about things that you're trying to forget. I remember that happened when my dad died. I'll tell you this. Never shared this before, especially not publicly. I, my wife knows. I, after my dad died, I went in and I found my dad. He had he had been deceased, and I had this reoccurring dream for about three weeks afterward. And it was me busting through the door and trying to save him. And every time I was too late. And it was torturous. I woke up and I was sweating and I was, I was, I was just. I was just beyond words. Because there was a part of me that felt like I killed him. That's how it felt. It was torturous. God invaded my sleep. In this place, I don't believe there will be a moment of reprieve. You won't sleep. You know, they, they say that in times of war, there were nations, as that's how they would torture people, as they would prevent them from sleeping. still used today. Have you ever been sleep-deprived, like really sleep-deprived? I'm not talking about 24 hours. I mean like 35 or 40 hours or 40. And you just can't sleep. And you know how out of your mind you get? You're not you. The things you're thinking and feeling... You don't want anybody to see. You've never seen it. You've never seen the full depravity that you have inside until you haven't slept for 40 hours. And it all starts coming out. Imagine this man has been there for 2,000 years and haven't slept a wink. How ravaged is his mind? How torturous is it that he knows I'll never get a break from this pain? Lost friend, listen to me. Everything that I'm describing at this moment may seem like it's a distant place well far off. In reality, it's one breath away. Amen. That's right. God's ultimate judgment. You know, it tells us something in Luke chapter 16 that I don't know how to take. I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know how to take it. And I, I probably ought to elaborate, but I won't on that. That man, uh, you know, the biblical accounts, and I don't, I don't want to get off here, but it uses words for a reason. And we use words flippantly, but it uses words for a reason. And notice there when that man is burning in agony and torments, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes, lifted them up. He didn't open them. He lifted them up. I've always read that as if Lifting up his eyes was a work. It was hard. He struggled to just lift them open. If, you're a, if somebody is sick and they're ailed and they're really bad and they lift up their eyes because they're on, the, they're on their deathbed and they're on the brink of death and they keep their eyes closed permanently and they lift their eyes up. And it says afar off, he could see heaven. And he saw The joys of heaven. You know, not only is he experiencing torments, but he sees people experiencing eternal bliss. Imagine the torments that would be added to your already torments. Lost, friend, you're a breath away from that being your reality. Here we are, you know, here we are and here's what the world tells us that we're doing. We're making things up and we're exaggerating and we're, we're out for our own interest and all these religious people are just these idiot zealots. Listen this evening, you can call me whatever you want to. Idiot, zealot, brainwashed, whatever it is. It matters not to me. What I know is that you're preparing, know it or not, for an eternity of torments and I don't want you to go there. And these people don't. And do we press you and conjole you and do everything we can to stand in the way. I was asking my son that the other day. I said, what if I was in our room? Uh, I asked uh, my older son Jets, and I said, if I was in my room, or, or rather this, I remember telling him, if I was going somewhere and you knew where I was going, there was somebody who had determined to harm me, what would you do? He told me I'd do everything I could, Dad, to stop you. He even got creative enough to say, I'd take a knife and I'd cut your tires where you couldn't go anywhere. That news, what he, what he did in the moment, I'd be angry about. But when I learned what was awaiting me, I'd love him more than anybody else in the world, wouldn't he? Paul, the writer, had that same experience. He hated those people. And then later wrote this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel while all of their friends were distracting, while all of his friends were distracting him, encouraging down his path, that path that leadeth to destruction, that path that he was very talented at traveling, that path where many people followed him, that path where he was exalted beyond measure, many people did that. And yet there were some humble servants of God that stood in his way, one man in particular who gave his life, trying to say, "There's there's destruction, there is wrath that is to come. Please turn away and repent and God used that man's life to make an indelible mark on Paul's heart and praise God he turned path and is rescued from that awful place called hell and where is Paul today? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping him in the most unimaginable glory we could ever imagine hell is real and here I am standing like a fool saying don't go there you don't have to go there God has prepared a place for you in heaven. Amen. Yeah. I didn't intend to say this. Who's in heaven? You know, as awful as hell is, heaven is not only the opposite of it, it is the absolute, beyond imagination, opposite of it. You know, people often paint like, Devil's on one shoulder and God's on the other and their conversation, and it makes it appear as though they're equals. Well, today it makes it appear as though Satan's the smart one and God's the dumb one. But nonetheless, it makes them appear as they're equals. I don't know how to even explain it other than to say, hell is as awful as you can imagine, and you don't want to go there and it's full of torments, but heaven, it's more majestic and glorious than how awful that hell is. For one primary reason, the person who's there. God is there. God is there. I love that man. The infinite God. You know, I, I imagine God... At times, I know this is not how it is. I'm just telling you my imagination today. He sees that I have this cup. I can contain so much in my cup. So much love, joy, blessings. So he just allows the stream to flow from the throne of God and fill up my cup. And I experience in this life, at times, joys that are unspeakable happiness that transcends words. When I get there, I imagine my entrance into that place being much like I have this cup. And God sends the flood to fill it up. And rather than filling my cup up, my cup begins to float in the infinite person of who God is. And I drift one way for a few million years enjoying this part of his goodness, and it doesn't begin to compare to what I experience as I drift this way. And all of eternity, it is as if the floodwaters continue to rise and rise, and yet I have not even contained just the smallest few ounces in my cup the last million years. You know, one thing you learn as you get older is that there are some things you just have to recognize you can't ever try to comprehend. Heaven is one of those. You stand, I stand before you today, lost friend. I have tried my best. I have failed miserably to communicate to you, hell is real, and you're going to go there if you don't make it right with God. You have the opportunity today to seek him Save friends, let's do everything we can tonight within God's wisdom that He communicates to us and leads us. Let's do whatever it is to prevent them from going to this awful place. I want to, before we have a song or an invitation or anything, I just want to call us to prayer. Let's go to the Lord. and if we have lost friends out in this congregation that have been unmoved for some period of time, you pray, that God would not just take the words and the truths about hell that I've spoken, but that He would magnify it in their hearts beyond a degree that they have never felt or seen it before. That as the psalmist said, the pains of hell, get a hold of them, grab them, shake them. And they would fall out and they would seek after God.